Section 30 of The History of Prostitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The History of Prostitution by William Sanger. Section 30. Chapter 23. Great Britain. History to the Time of the Commonwealth. We have stated that the king claimed the disposal of the hands and fortunes of the heiresses. The barons claimed a still greater privilege from their tenants. In some localities, the feudal lord insisted upon enjoying the person of one of the daughters of each tenant who happened to be blessed with the plurality of them. He returned her to her parents within a given time. Every extreme is followed by a reaction in the opposite direction. The abject condition of women, as indicated by the foregoing facts, led to the institution of chivalry, which elevated her from the position of a slave and the mere instrument of sensual gratification, to that almost of a deity, thus assigning her a rank as much above her real sphere as her former one had been beneath it. Previous to the advent of this system, women could not appear at any public exhibition or place of amusement unless accompanied by a band of armed retainers any female encountered alone and unprotected was liable to insult chivalry if it did not put an end to greatly modified this state of things by its rules each of its members was constituted a champion of female virtue and honour no man was admitted into the order whose valour was not above suspicion and a word uttered by him derogatory to the beau sex excluded him from its ranks no woman however was deemed worthy of knightly protection who had not preserved her honour it being to that quality alone that knighthood volunteered its safeguard at public ceremonies if a woman of easy virtue ventured to take precedence of a woman of honourable fame she was immediately reminded of the impropriety of her conduct by some member of the order and compelled to retire to the rear. This recognition of virtue had a strong tendency to promote female chastity. It could not put a stop to voluntary prostitution, but it at least prevented virtuous women being necessitated to yield their honour to force. It held out, moreover, an attractive premium to correct conduct among the sex by making it the object of heroic exploits celebrated in the romantic lays of minstrels and troubadours. Its observances have a fantastic aspect in the light of modern civilization, but they unquestionably exercised a powerful corrective influence over the female character, so degraded at its commencement, while at the same time they elevated that of the male sex by teaching them to respect themselves. In the wars of the period it was against the rules of chivalry to take women prisoners, when a town was captured and entered by victorious troops, the first step taken was to make proclamation that no violence should be offered to any female. This conduct was so much at variance with the notions and habits of soldiery that the feelings which sustained chivalry must have taken deep root in the minds of all classes to restrain the passions of the military, strengthened as they were by dissolute habits and the absence of opportunity for their gratification during service in the field. To such an extreme was this feeling of deferential courtesy to the sex carried, that the Normans were severely censured for their conduct at the capture of the castle of Du Guesclin, 
it being alleged that they disturbed the repose of the ladies. But, as the tendency of every human institution is to degenerate from its original purpose, the rigid purism which marked the foundation of chivalry soon began to relax, and disorders crept in and sapped the basis of a system which was too theoretically perfect to have any extended duration. It is difficult to ascertain the precise character of the relations which existed between the troubadours and the mistresses to whose service they devoted themselves, and who were frequently married women. The knight Bertram happened to lose the favour of his mistress, the wife of Talleyrand de Perigord, in consequence of stories which had been related to her, implicating his fidelity, and charging him with dividing his knightly attentions. He protests his innocence of these accusations, in a lay as impassioned as that of a lover to the object of his adoration, and invokes a number of knightly calamities upon himself, if his devotion to her be not above suspicion. It is hardly creditable that the love of such ardent admirers was immaculate Platonism. On the other hand, the fact that husbands were rarely or never jealous of them goes some way to refute the idea that they had a more serious character. The lords of those times were proud of the protestations of regard offered to their ladies, and rewarded the troubadours with rich and valuable presents. The lords of our day, grown wise by experience, make a point of keeping all such interlopers at a distance. While chivalry poised its lance in defence of the Lucretias, and then of the Dulcineas of the day, the religious view of the commerce of the sexes was particularly ascetic. Although the most profound devotion was paid to woman in the abstract by the order, the church sought to encourage perpetual celibacy, the seclusion of women, and the separation of the sexes. The clergy were forbidden to marry, and the idea seemed to prevail that it was impossible for men and women to mingle without being under the influence of lascivious ideas, and ready to carry them into practice as soon as opportunity offered. The attempt to organize society on such a basis had an inevitable tendency to produce demoralization. Its obvious result, instead of promoting chastity, was to increase secret licentiousness and encourage prostitution. Even the voluntary vows of knights and troubadours were, in the end, as little observed as these ecclesiastical precepts. The profligacy of the troubadours became open and undisguised, and the virtue of their mistresses naturally kept pace with their example. The knights who enlisted in the Crusades, with a large amount of zeal and but a small share of wealth, supported their retainers by robberies on the way, and the females who accompanied them acted as camp followers usually do. No institution which deals merely in external observances can restrain immorality in circumstances favourable to its development, and hence chivalry was forced to yield before more powerful influences. That it served its purpose in elevating the condition of woman, and in giving a better tone to society at large, it would be unjust to deny. Even when chivalry declined, and ceased to inspire feats of knight-errantry, we find women, instead of falling back into the degrading position they had formerly occupied, employing themselves in intellectual pursuits, publishing books, mixing in public controversies, distinguishing themselves in the acquisition of languages, 
and even taking a leading part in the political affairs of the time. Among the women who acquired a historical notoriety by their position as royal mistresses, during the epoch comprised between the Norman conquest and the reign of Henry the Eighth, were the fair Rosamond, concubine of Henry the Second, and Jane Shore, the mistress of Edward the Fourth. The misfortunes, as well as the generous qualities of these fair sinners, have thrown a sort of halo around them. Rosamond, surnamed the Fair, on account of her exquisite beauty, was the daughter of Walter, Lord Clifford, and was educated in the nunnery of Godstow. The popular tradition concerning her is that Henry, hearing of her charms, paid her a visit, but, finding her virtue inflexible, had to exercise his authority as sovereign to compel her to yield to his wishes. He placed her in a building erected in the midst of a labyrinth at Woodstock, access to which could only be obtained by a clue of thread. Henry located her here to protect her from the jealousy of his Queen Eleanor. She bore the king two sons, William Longsword, Earl of Salisbury, and Geoffrey, Bishop of Lincoln. During the king's absence in France, he entrusted the keeping of Woodstock and the care of the fair Rosamond to one Lord Thomas, who endeavoured to seduce her. In revenge for the rejection of his overtures, the faithless warden conducted Queen Eleanor to her retreat, and the latter is said to have mixed a cup of poison, which her minions compelled the unfortunate Rosamond to drink. It is also alleged that the Queen struck the poor girl on her lip with her clenched hand. Some assert that Rosamond died a natural death in a convent at Oxford, and attributed the origin of the story of poisoning to the figure of a cup which was sculptured on her tomb. It is more probable that this effigy was placed there to commemorate the actual event. Rosamond was buried in the church of Godstow, opposite the high altar, where her remains lay undisturbed until they were ordered to be removed with every mark of indignity by Hugh, Bishop of Lincoln, in the year 1191. She was regarded by the people as a saint, if not a martyr, and wonderful legends were related concerning her. The celebrated concubine of Edward IV was the wife of Matthew Shaw, a goldsmith in Lombard Street, London. Edward possessed a good figure and pleasing address, and was fond of athletic sports and exercises, which he enjoyed in company with the citizens, among whom he became exceedingly popular. His popularity extended to many of the citizens' wives, and it was not considered out of the natural course of things that Mrs. Shaw should be removed from Lombard Street to shine at court as the royal favourite. Historians represent her as extremely beautiful, remarkably gay in temperament, and of uncommon generosity. The king, it is said, was no less charmed with her temper and disposition than with her person, she never made use of her influence over him to the prejudice of any one, and if she ever importuned him, it was in favour of the unfortunate. After the death of Edward, she attached herself to Lord Hastings, and when Richard III cut off that nobleman as an obstacle to his schemes, she was arrested as an accomplice on the ridiculous charge of witchcraft. This accusation, however, terminated in a public penance, with the loss of whatever little property she possessed. Notwithstanding the severities exercised against her, it is certain that she was alive in the reign of Henry the Eighth, when Sir Thomas More mentions having seen her, poor and shrivelled, without the least trace of her former beauty. 
Mr. Rowe, in his tragedy of Jane Shore, has adopted the popular story related to the old ballad of her perishing from hunger in a ditch, where Shoreditch now stands, but Stowe assures us that that street was thus named previous to the time of Jane Shore. The example of none of the English kings had a greater influence in bringing the marriage tie into disrepute than that of Henry VIII. An effort has been made by Mr. Frond in his New History of England to redeem the character of this monarch from some portion of the obloquy with which it is covered, but there is no doubt that he was an unmitigated monster. Curious to say, during his youth and early manhood, he betrayed no evidence of the brutal passions which afterward moved him. He was the husband of Catherine for seventeen years before his domestic conduct incurred reproach. At that late period of his career he conceived a violent passion for Anne Boleyn, and, in order to get her to share his bed, sought to divorce his wife. From this period he seemed to become the prey of a restless concupiscence, which sought gratification in new objects of indulgence, and his passion for the women he married and beheaded was as short-lived as it was violent. There is reason to believe that his marriage with Anne Boleyn was more than adulterous. It is said Anne's mother had been more complacent to Henry than her duty to her husband or the laws of morality would have sanctioned, and we have the authority of Bishop Fisher for concluding that Anne was the result of this illicit connection, and that when the king expressed an intention of marrying her, Lady Boleyn exhorted him to abandon his design, as Anne was his own daughter. Henry was not to be deterred by an obstacle of this sort. He had great difficulty in procuring a divorce, and in the meanwhile he and Anne had become so intimate that she began to exhibit proofs of the connection which could not be concealed. A private marriage was resorted to, considerations of state rendering it prudent to keep the union secret. Catherine was divorced through the instrumentality of Cranmer, but Henry did not long continue to repose confidence in his new bride. Soon after the marriage was made public, and she had been formally inaugurated as queen, she attended a tilting-match at Greenwich, accompanied by the king and a large concourse of spectators. The king observed her exchange amorous signals with one of the combatants, who was also one of her paramours. Henry had entertained suspicions of her connection with this man, and this proof, as he regarded it, of her infidelity aroused his jealousy. He left the scene on the instant, and returned to Westminster, where he issued orders to have her immediately arrested. She was thrown into prison, and tried on the joint charges of adultery and incest. She was accused of having committed adultery with four separate members of the king's household, and of having had incestuous intercourse with her own brother, Lord Rochford. She was tried, found guilty, and executed. Whether she committed the entire criminality laid to her charge, it is impossible to say, but that the incidents of the career just described were in perfect unison with the doings of Henry and his court, there is no doubt. Of the influence of such examples on the morals of the people at large, there is, unfortunately, as little question. If court manners and court styles are zealously followed, the vices that spring from them are not less assiduously improved upon. 
Henry's strong sexual passions, as well as his arbitrary disposition, were bequeathed to his daughter Elizabeth. However historians may differ as to the degree of her depravity, they all agree that her right to the title of Virgin Queen was exceedingly ill-founded. Many of her delinquencies with persons of the opposite sex were notorious, although perhaps difficult of proof. While she had not the slightest claim to beauty, she delighted in flattery, and could swallow any amount of gross and fulsome adulation. Her vanity so blinded her that she never perceived that the extravagant praises lavished on her personal attractions were merely covert satire. It is said that Elizabeth indulged in almost indiscriminate lewdness, and that Leicester, Hatton, Essex, Mountjoy, and numerous others shared her favours. In one of the notes appended to Hume's fourth volume, the nature of Elizabeth's dealings with a large number of her favourites is set forth, the author of the statement being the Countess of Shrewsbury. Mary, Queen of Scots, at a time when friendly relations existed between her and Elizabeth, wrote to the latter that the Countess had reported that Elizabeth had given a promise of marriage to a certain courtier, but, finding the marriage inexpedient, had dispensed with the ceremony and admitted him to her bed. The Countess also stated that she had been equally indulgent to Simier, the French agent, and that Hatton, another of her paramours, had spread many reports indicative of her extreme sexual passion. The immediate successors of Elizabeth were of a different personal temperament, and did not abandon themselves to such scandalous excesses. James I had no mistresses, and was not of a character to seek pleasure in extravagant licentiousness, but his court was not free from the scenes which had disgraced those of Henry and Elizabeth. James, being desirous of uniting the Earl of Essex with the Lady Frances Howard, daughter of the Earl of Suffolk, had the young couple betrothed, although they had not attained the age of puberty. The Earl was only fourteen years of age, while Lady Frances was but thirteen, and it was deemed proper for the youth to travel, until both should have arrived at the maturity necessary for the consummation of the marriage relation. After four years spent on the continent, the Earl returned to England, and found his affianced bride in the full lustre of extraordinary beauty, and of the fame which great personal charms excite. He had also the mortification to find himself repulsed when he approached her as a husband, and was met by every manifestation of dislike and contempt. He complained to her parents on the subject, and they compelled her to accompany him to the country. Although the young countess obeyed this mandate literally, the feud between her and Essex was far from terminated. She recognized him as her husband in name only, and sedulously kept herself aloof from his society, nor could any of his endeavors overcome her repugnance. The lady persisted in her obstinacy. The husband redoubled his attentions and importunities, but, finding that she was invincible, he finally abandoned the pursuit and separated from her. The cause of this strange conduct on the part of the countess was the passion which she entertained for a Scotch adventurer named Robert Carr, who had found a favourable reception from the king by whom he was created Viscount Rochester. She believed that by refusing to consummate her marriage with Essex she would not be considered by the world in the light of his wife, and she hoped to procure a divorce, 
which would enable her to marry Rochester. As their mutual attachment was ardent and their opportunities for being together frequent, they anticipated the probability of a marriage and indulged their passions without waiting for the ceremony. They did not find as much trouble in procuring a divorce as they had anticipated. The king, who had a strong partiality for Rochester, favoured their views, and Essex, finding that his suit was hopeless with his wife, opposed no obstacle to the nullification of his marriage. The grounds on which the countess sued out the divorce were of rather a curious character. The chief allegation against Essex was impotency. At that time a firm faith existed in the absurd notions that there were people who possessed the power of witchcraft, enabling them, among other things, to deprive a man of his virility. It was asserted and maintained that Essex had been subjected to this influence, and was therefore incompetent to occupy the position of a married man. The divorce was secured, and Rochester and the Countess experienced no further obstacle to the gratification of their desires. Rochester had previously consulted Overbury on the difficulties of his position, and the latter strongly advised him not to marry the Countess. These facts, coming to the ears of Lady Frances, she induced Rochester to have Overbury poisoned. On the discovery of the murder, Rochester and his wife were brought to trial and convicted, but the mistaken clemency of the king interposed between them and the doom they so richly merited. They passed the remainder of their days in obscurity, but as bitter enemies, and although they resided in the same house for many years, no word or message was ever exchanged between them. End of section 30